Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of The World of Percy Jackson. In this episode, we're going to read chapters 5 through 6, and in the previous episode, we read chapters 3 to 4. Now, in the previous episode, a quick recap was that Jason, Piper, and Annabeth had met Juno, the Roman version of Hera, and let's just say that she gave some very interesting advice. But now we're going to read from Reyna's perspective, seeing how Reyna, Coach Hedge, and I believe Nico are all trying to transport the Athena Parthenos to its rightful place, and how that's going on their journey. So now we're going to read Chapter 5, Reyna. Dive bombing a volcano was not on Reyna's bucket list. Her first view of southern Italy was from 5,000 feet in the air. To the west, along the crescent of the Gulf of Naples, the lights of sleeping cities glittered in the pre-dawn gloom. A thousand feet below her, a half-mile wild caldera yawned at the top of a mountain, white steam pluming from the center. Reyna's disorientation took a moment to subside. Shadow travel left her groggy and nauseous, as if she'd been dragged from the cold waters at the Frigidarium into the sauna at a Roman bathhouse. Then she realized she was suspended in midair. Gravity took hold, and she began to fall. Nico! She yelled, Pads pipes! Cursed Gleason Hedge. Wah! Nico flailed, almost slipping out of Reyna's grip. She held tight and grabbed Coach Hedge by the shirt collar as he started to tumble away. If they got separated now, they were dead. They plummeted toward the volcano as their largest piece of luggage, the 40-foot-tall Athena Parthenos, trailed after them, leading least to, the, to a harness on Nico's back, like a very ineffective parachute. That's Vesuvius below us! Reyna shouted over the wind. Nico, teleport us out of here! His eyes were wild and unfocused. His dark, feathery hair whipped around his face like a raven shot out of the sky. I, I can't! No strength! Coach Hedge bleated. Bah! Newsflash, kid! Goats can't fly! Zap us out of here or we're gonna get flattened into an Athena Parthenos omelet! Raina tried to think. She could accept death if she had to, but if the Athena Parthenos was destroyed, their quest would fail. Raina could not accept that. Nico, shadow travel, she ordered. I'll lend you my strength. He stared at her blankly. How? Do it! She tightened her grip on his hand. The torch and sword symbol of Bologna on her forearm grew painfully hot, as if it were being seared into her skin for the first time. Nico gasped. Color returned to his face. Just before they hit the volcano's steam plume, they slipped into shadows. The air turned frigid. The sound of the wind was replaced by a cacophony of voices, whispering in a thousand languages. Reyna's insides felt like a giant paragua. Gold syrup trickled over crushed ice. Her favorite treat from her childhood in Vieja San Juan. She wondered why that memory would surface now, when she was on the verge of death. Then her vision cleared, her feet rested on solid ground. The eastern sky had begun to lighten. For a moment, Reyna thought she was back in New Rome. Doric columns lined an atrium the size of a baseball diamond. In front of her, a bronze fawn stood in the middle of a sunken fountain decorated with mosaic tile. Crepe myrtles and gross bushes bloomed in a nearby garden. Palm trees and pines stretched skyward. Cobblestone paths led from the courtyard in several directions. Straight, level roads of good Roman construction edging low stone houses with colonnaded porches. Reyna turned. Behind her, the Athena Parthenos stood intact and upright, dominating the courtyard like a ridiculously oversized lawn ornament.
The little bronze fawn in the fountain had both his arms raised, facing Athena, so he seemed to be cowering in fear of the new arrival. On the horizon, Mount Vesuvius loomed, a dark humpback shape now several miles away. Thick pillars of steam curled from the crest. We're in Pompeii, Reyna realized. Oh, that's not good, Nico said, and immediately collapsed. Whoa! Kochech caught him before he hit the ground. The satyr propped him against Athena's feet and loosened the harness that attached Nico to the statue. Reyna's own knees buckled. She'd expected some backlash. It happened every time she shared her strength, but she hadn't anticipated so much raw anguish from Nico D'Angelo. She sat down heavily, just managing to stay conscious. Gods of Rome. If this was only a portion of Nico's pain, how could he bear it? She tried to steady her breathing while Coach Hedge rummaged through his camping supplies. Around Nico's boots, the stones cracked. Dark seams radiated outward like a shotgun blast of ink, as if Nico's body were trying to expel all the shadows he'd traveled through. Yesterday had been worse, an entire meadow withering skeletons rising from the earth. Reyna wasn't anxious for that to happen again. Drink something. She offered him a canteen of unicorn draught powder horn mixed with sanctified water from the little Tiber. They found it worked on Nico better than nectar, helping to cleanse the fatigue and darkness from his system with less danger of spontaneous combustion. Nico gulped it down. He still looked terrible, his skin had a bluish tint, his cheeks were sunken. Hanging at his side, the scepter of Diocletian glowed angry purple, like a radioactive bruise. He studied Reyna. How... How did you do that? That surge of energy? Reyna turned her forearm. The tattoo's tattoo still burned like hot wax. The symbol of Bologna, SPQR, with four lines for her years of service. I don't like to talk about it, she said, but it's a power for my mother. I can impart strength to others. Coach Hedge looked up from his rucksack. Seriously? Why haven't you hooked me up, Roman girl? I want super muscles. Raina frowned. It doesn't work like that, Coach. I can only do it in life and death situations, and it's more useful in large groups. When I command troops, I can share whatever attributes I have. Strength, courage, endurance, multiplied by the size of my forces. Nico arched an eyebrow. Useful for a Roman praetor. Reyna didn't answer. She preferred not to speak of her power for exactly this reason. She didn't want the demigods under her command to think she was controlling them, or that she'd become a leader because she had some special magic. She could only share the qualities she already possessed, and she couldn't help anyone who wasn't worthy of being a hero. Coach Hedge grunted. Too bad. Super muscles would have been nice. He went back to sorting through his pack, which seemed to hold a bottomless sugar supply of cooking utensils, survivalist gear, and random sports equipment. Nigo took another swig of unicorn draught. His eyes were heavy with exhaustion, but Reyna could tell he was fighting to stay awake. You stumbled just now, he noted, when you use your power. Do you get some sort of, um... Feedback for me? It's not mind reading, she said. Not even an empathy link. Just a temporary wave of exhaustion, primal mo- emotions. Your pain washes over me. I take on some of your burden. Nico's expression became guarded. He twisted the silver skull ring on his finger the same way Reyna did with her silver ring when she was thinking. Sharing a habit with the son of Hades made her 
uneasy. She felt more pain from Nico and their brief connection than she had from her entire legion during the battle against the giant polyboats. It had drained her worse than the last time she'd used her power to sustain her Pegasus Scipio during their journey across the Atlantic. She tried to push away that memory, her brave winged friend dying from poison, his muzzle in her lap looking at her trustingly as she raised her dagger to end his misery. Gods know. She couldn't dwell on that or it would break her. But the pain she felt from Nico was sharper. You should rest, she told him. After two jumps in a row, even with a little help, you're luckily you're lucky to be alive. We'll need you to be ready again by nightfall. She felt bad at asking him to do something so impossible. Unfortunately, she'd had a lot of practice pushing demigods beyond their limits. Nico clenched his jaw and nodded. We're stuck here now. He scanned the ruins. But Pompeii is the last place I would have chosen to land. This place is full of lemurs. Lemurs? Coach Hedge seemed to be making some sort of snare out of kite string. A tennis racket and a hunting knife. You mean those cute fuzzy critters? No. Nico sounded annoyed like he got that question a lot. Lemurs. Unfriendly ghosts. All Roman cities have them, but in Pompeii, the whole city was wiped out. Rain remembered. In 79 CE, Vesuvius erupted and covered the town in ash. Nico nodded. A tragedy like that creates a lot of angry spirits. Coach Hedge eyed the distant volcano. It's steaming. Is that a bad sign? I'm not sure. Nico picked out a hole in the knee of his black jeans. Mountain gods, the array, can sense children of Hades. It's possible that's why we were pulled off course. The spirit of Vesuvius might have been intentionally trying to kill us, but I doubt the mountain can hurt us this far away. Working up to a full eruption would take too long. The immediate threat is all around us. The back of Andrena's neck tingled. She'd grown used to layers, the friendly spirits at Camp Jupiter, but even they made her uneasy. They didn't have a good understanding of personal space. Sometimes they'd walk right through her, leaving her with vertigo. Being in Pompeii gave Reyna the same feeling, as if the whole city was one big ghost that swallowed her whole. She couldn't tell her friends how much she feared ghosts, or why she feared them. The whole reason she and her sister had run away from San Juan all those years ago. That secret had to stay buried. Can you keep them at bay? She asked. Nico turned up his palms. I've sent out that message. Stay away. But once I'm asleep, it won't do us much good. Coach Hedge patted his tennis racket knife contraption. Don't worry, kid. I'm going to line the perimeter with alarms and snares. Plus, I'll be watching over you the whole time with my baseball bat. That didn't seem to reassure Nico, but his eyes were already half-closed. Okay. But go easy. We don't want another Albania. No. Rainer agreed. Their first shadow travel experience together two days ago had been a total fiasco. Possibly the most humiliating episode in Reyna's long career. Perhaps someday, if they survived, they would look back on it and laugh, but not now. The three of them had agreed to never speak of it. Whatever happened in Albania would stay in Albania. Coach Hedge looked hurt. Fine. Whatever. Just rest, kid. We got you covered. All right. Nico relented. Maybe a little. He managed to take off his aviator jacket and wad it into a pillow before he kneeled over and began to snore. Reyna marveled at how peaceful he looked. 
the worry lines vanished. His face became strangely angelic, like his surname, D'Angelo. She could almost believe he was a regular 14-year-old boy, not a son of Hades who'd been pulled out of time from the 1940s and forced to endure more tragedy and danger than most demigods would in a lifetime. When Nico had arrived at Camp Jupiter, Reyna didn't trust him. She sensed there was more to his story than being an ambassador from his father, Pluto. Now, of course, she knew the truth. He was a Greek demigod, the first person in living memory, perhaps the first ever to go back and forth between the Roman and Greek camps without telling either group that the other existed. Strangely, that made Reyna trust Nico more. Sure, he wasn't Roman. He never hunted with Lupa or endured the brutal Legion training. But Nico had proven himself in other ways. He'd kept the camp's secrets for the best of reasons, because he'd feared a war. He'd plunged into Tartarus alone, voluntarily, to find the doors of death. He'd been captured and imprisoned by giants. He'd led the crew of the Argo II into the House of Hades, and now... He'd accepted yet another terrible quest, risking himself to haul the Athena Parthenos back to Camp Half-Blood. The pace of the journey was maddeningly slow. They could only shadow travel a few hundred miles each night, resting during the day to let Nico recover, but even that required more stamina from Nico than Reyna would have thought possible. He carried so much sadness and loneliness, so much heartache, yet he put his mission first. He persevered. Reyna respected that. She understood that. She'd never been a touchy-feely person, but she had the strangest desire to drape her cloaker over Nico's shoulders and tuck him in. She mentally chided herself. He was a comrade, not her little brother. He wouldn't appreciate the gesture. Hey, Coach Edge interrupted her thoughts. You need sleep too. I'll take first watch and cook some grub. Those ghosts shouldn't be too dangerous now that the sun's coming up. Reyna hadn't noticed how light it was getting. Pink and turquoise clouds striped the eastern horizon. The little bronze fawn cast a shadow across the dry fountain. I've read about this place, Reyna realized. It's one of the best preserved villas in Pompeii. They call it the House of the Fawn. Gleason glanced at the statue with distaste. Yeah, well, today is the House of the Satyr. Reyna managed to smile. She was starting to appreciate the differences between satyrs and fawns. If she ever fell asleep with a fawn on duty, she'd wake up with her supplies stolen, a mustache drawn on her face, and the fawn long gone. Coach Hedge was different. Mostly good different. Though he did have an unhealthy obsession with martial arts and baseball bats. All right, she agreed. You take first watch. I'll put Aram and Arangetum on guard duty with you. Hedge looked like he wanted to protest, but Brayna whistled sharply. The metallic greyhounds materialized from the ruins, racing toward her from different directions. Even after so many years, Reyna had no idea where they came from or where they went when she dismissed them. But seeing them lifted her spirits. Hedge cleared his throat. <clears throat> you sure those aren't Dalmatians? They look like Dalmatians. They're greyhounds, coach. Reyna had no idea why Hedge feared Dalmatians, but she was too tired to ask right now. Arum? Arangetum? Cardus while I sleep. Obey Gleason Hedge. The dogs circled the courtyard, keeping their distance from the Athena Parthenos, which radiated hostility towards everything Roman. Reyna herself was only now getting used to it. She was pretty sure the statue did not appreciate being ro relocated in the middle of an ancient Roman city. She laid down and pulled her purple cloak over herself. Her fingers curled around the pouch at her belt, where she kept the silver coin Annabeth had given her before they'd parted company in Epirus. 
It's a sign that things can change, Annabeth had told her. The mark of Athena is yours now. Maybe the coin will bring you luck. Whether that luck would be good or bad, Rena wasn't sure. She took one last look at the bronze fawn cowering before the sunrise in Athena Parthenos. And she closed her eyes and slipped into drinks. And that's the end of chapter five. Well, that's definitely interesting. I think that this was very, uh, very interesting chapter simply due to the fact that this was the perspective from Reyna. Um, I think that it's very, very fascinating to see how we finally get to see how Reyna's thinking about all of this. We've always seen our characters, the other characters, converse with Reyna, but I think it's been a very rare occasion if we ever see Reyna's chapter. So I think I really appreciate that. I really appreciate the context that we're able to now garner from Reyna and what her overall feelings are with this mission. And I think I really do applaud her. I think the fact that she was so open to admitting that it was a misunderstanding with what the incident that occurred at Camp at Camp Jupiter has now been turned into something that has been resolved. And Reyna is doing whatever she can to help out the group. So I think that that's definitely character development at its finest. And I can't wait to read this right after the break. So don't go anywhere. Maybe grab some water, grab a snack. Come right back because now we're going to go into the... uh, After the break, we'll read chapter 6, Reyna. And we're back from the ads, and now we're going to read chapter 6, Reyna. Most of the time, Reyna could control her nightmares. She had trained her mind to start all her dreams in her favorite place, the Garden of Bacchus, on the tallest hill in New Rome. She felt safe and tranquil there. When visions invaded her sleep, as they always did with demigods, she could contain them by imagining they were reflections in the garden's fountain. This allowed her to sleep peacefully and avoid waking up the next morning in a cold sweat. Tonight, however, she wasn't so lucky. The dream began well enough. She stood in the garden on a warm afternoon, the arbor heavy with blooming honeysuckle. In the central fountain, the little statue of Bacchus spouted water into the basin. The golden domes and red-tiled roofs of New Rome spread out below her. Half a mile west rose the fortifications of Camp Jupiter. Beyond that, the little Tiber curved gently around the valley, tracing the edge of the Berkeley Hills, hazy and golden in the summer light. Reyna held a cup of hot chocolate, her favorite drink. She exhaled contently. This place was worth defending for herself, for her friends, for all demigods. Her four years at Camp Jupiter hadn't been easy, but they'd been the best time of Reyna's life. Suddenly, the horizon darkened. Reyna thought it might be a storm. She realized it was a tidal wave of dark loam was rolling across the hills, turning the skin of the earth inside out, leaving nothing behind. Reyna watched in horror as the earth and tide reached the edge of the valley. The god Terminus sustained a magical barrier around the camp, but it slowed the destruction for only a moment. Purple light sprayed upward like shattered glass, and the tide poured through, shredding tear trees, destroying roads, wiping the little Tiber off the map. It's a vision, Reyna thought. I can control this. She tried to change the dream. She imagined that the destruction was only a reflection in the fountain, a harmless video image, but the nightmare continued in full, vivid scope. 
The Earth swallowed the field of Mars, obliterating every trace of forts and trenches from the war games. The city's aqueduct collapsed like a line of children's blocks. Camp Jupiter itself fell, watchtowers crashing down, walls and barracks disintegrating. The screams of demigods were silenced and the Earth moved on. A sob built in Raina's throat. The gleaming shrines and monuments on Temple Hill crumbled. The Colosseum and the Hippodrome were swept away. The tide of Earth reached the Pomerian line and roared straight into the city. Families ran through the forum. Children cried in terror. The Senate House imploded. Villas and gardens disappeared like crops under a tiller. The tide churned uphill toward the Garden of Bacchus, the last remnant of Reina's world. You left them helpless, Reina Ramirez Arellano. A woman's voice issued from the black terrain. Your camp will be destroyed. Your quest is a fool's errand. My hunter comes for you. Reina tore herself from the garden railing. She ran to the fountain of Bacchus and gripped the rim of the basin, staring desperately into the water. She willed the nightmare to become a harmless reflection. Thunk. The basin broke in half, split by her arrow the size of a rake. Reina stared in shock at the raven feather fletching, the shaft painted red, yellow, and black like a coral snake, the Stygian iron point embedded in her gut. She looked up through a haze of pain. At the edge of the garden, a dark figure approached. The silhouette of a man whose eyes shone like miniature headlamps, blinding Reina. She heard the scrape of iron against leather as he drew another arrow from his quiver. Then, her dream changed. The garden and the hunter vanished, along with the arrow and Reina's stomach. She found herself in an abandoned vineyard. Vineyard. Stretched out before her, acres of dead grapevines hung in rows on wooden lattices, like gnarled miniature skeletons. At the far end of the fields stood a cedar-shingled farmhouse with a wraparound porch. Beyond that, the land dropped off into the sea. Reina recognized this place, the goldsmith winery on the north shore of Long Island. Her scouting power parties had secured it as a forward base for the Legion's assault on Camp Half-Blood. She had ordered the bulk of the Legion to remain in Manhattan until she told him otherwise, but obviously Octavian had dissipated her. The entire 12th Legion was camped in the northernmost field. They dug in with their usual military precision, 10-foot deep trenches and spiked earthen walls around the perimeter. A watchtower on each corner armed with ballistae. Inside, tents were arranged in neat rows of white and red. The standards of all five cohorts curled in the wind. The sight of the legion should have, been lift- should have lifted Reina's spirits. It was a small force, barely 200 demigods, but they were all well-trained and well-organized. If Julius Caesar came back from the dead, he would have had no trouble reorganizing Reina's troops as worthy soldiers of Rome. But they had no business being so close to Camp Half-Blood. Octavian's insubordination made Reina clench her fists. He was intentionally provoking the Greeks, hoping for battle. Her dream vision zoomed to the porch of the farmhouse, where Octavian sat in a gilded chair that looked suspiciously like a throne. Along with his senatorial purple-lined toga, his centurion badge, and his augur's knife, he adopted a new honor, a white cloth mantle over his head, which marked him as Pontifex Maximus, High Priest to the Gods. Reina wanted to strangle him. No demigod in living memory had taken the title Pontifex Maximus. By doing so, Octavian was elevating himself almost to the level of emperor. To his right, reports and maps were strewn across a low table. To his left, a marble altar was reaped with fruit and gold offerings. 
no doubt for the gods. But to Reyna, it looked like an altar to Octavian himself. At his side, the legion's eagle-bearer, Jacob, stood at attention, sweating in his lion-skin cloak as he held the staff with the golden eagle standard of the twelfth. Octavian was in the midst of an audience. At the base of the stairs knelt a boy in jeans and a rumpled hoodie. Octavian's fellow centurion of the first cohort, Mike Cahell, stood to one side with his arms crossed, glowering with obvious displeasure. Well now, Octavian scanned a piece of parchment. I see you are a legacy, a descendant of Orcus. The boy in the hoodie looked up, and Reyna caught her breath. (sighs) Bryce Lawrence. She recognized his mop of brown hair, his broken nose, his cruel green eyes, and smug, twisted smile. Yes, my lord, Bryce said. Oh, I'm not a lord. Octavian's eyes crinkled. Just a centurion, an augur, and a humble priest doing his best to serve the gods. I understand you were dismissed from the Legion for, ah, disciplinary problems. Reyna tried to shout, but she couldn't make a sound. Octavian knew perfectly well why Bryce had been kicked out. Much like his godly forefather, Orcus, the underworld god of punishment, Bryce was completely remorseless. The little psychopath had survived his trial with Lupa just fine, but as soon as he arrived at Camp Jupiter, he had proved to be untrainable. He had tried to set a cat on fire for fun. He had stabbed a horse and sent it stampeding through the forum. He was even suspected of sabotaging a siege engine and getting his own centurion killed during the war games. If Reyna had been able to prove it, Bryce's punishment would have been death. But because the evidence was circumstantial, and because Bryce's family was rich and powerful with lots of influence in New Rome, he gone off with lighter sentence of banishment. Yes, Pontifex, Bryce said slowly. But if I may, those charges were unproven. I am a loyal Roman. Micah Hell looked like he was doing this his best not to throw up. Octavian smiled. I believe in second chances. You responded to my call for recruits. You have the proper credentials and letters of recommendation. Do you pledge to follow my orders and serve the Legion? Absolutely, said Bryce. Then you are reinstated in probatio, Octavian said, until you have proven yourself in combat. He gestured at Mike, who reached in his pout and fished out a lead probatio tablet on a leather cord. He hung the cord around Bryce's neck. Report to the fifth cohort, Octavian said. They could use some new blood, some fresh perspective. If your centurion Dakota has any problem with that, tell him to talk to me. Bryce smiled like he'd been handed a sharp knife. My pleasure. And Bryce. Octavian's face looked almost ghoulish under his white mantle. His eyes too piercing. His cheeks too gaunt. His lips too thin and colorless. However much money, power, and prestige the Lawrence family carries in Legion, remember that my family carries more. I am personally sponsoring you, as I am sponsoring all the other new recruits. Follow my orders, and you'll advance quickly. Soon I may have a little job for you, a chance to prove your worth, but cross me, and I will not be as lenient as Reyna. Do you understand? Bryce's smile faded. He looked like he wanted to say something, but he changed his mind. He nodded. Good, Octavian said. Also, get a haircut. You look like one of those Gracus scums. Dismissed. After Bryce left, Micah Hell shook his head. That makes two dozen now. It's good news, my friend, Octavian uh, assured him. We need the extra manpower. 
murderers, thieves, traitors. Loyal demigods, Octavian said, who owe their position to me. Mike scowled. Until Reyna had met him, she never understood why people called biceps guns. But Mike's arms were as thick as bazooka barrels. He had broad features, a toasted almond complexion, onyx hair, and proud dark eyes. Like the old Hawaiian kings. She wasn't sure how a high school linebacker from Hilo had wound up with Venus for a mom. But no one in the Legion gave him any griefs about that. Not once they saw him crush rocks with his bare hands. Reyna had always liked Micah Hill. Unfortunately, Mike was very loyal to his sponsor. And his sponsor was Octavian. The Pontifex rose and stretched. Don't worry, old friend. Our siege teams have the Greek camp surrounded. Our eagles have complete air superiority. The Greeks aren't going anywhere until we're ready to strike. In 11 days, all my forces will be in place. My little surprise will be prepared. On August 1st, this feast of Spes, the Greek camp will fall. But Rhaenys said, We've been through this! Octavian slid his iron dagger from his belt and threw it at the table, where it impaled a map of Camp Half-Blood. Reyna has forfeited her position. She went back to the ancient lands, which is against the law. But the Earth Mother has been stirring because of the war between the Greek and Roman camps, yes? The gods are incapacitated, yes? And how do we solve that problem, Mike? We eliminate the division. We wiped out the Greeks. We return the gods to their proper manifestation as Roman. Once the gods are restored to their full power, Gaia will not dare rise. She will sink back into her slumber. We demigods will be strong and unified as we were in the old days of the Empire. Besides, the first day of August is most auspicious. The month named after my ancestor Augustus. And you know how he united the Romans. He seized power and became emperor. Mike grumbled. Octavian waved aside the comment. Nonsense! He saved Rome by becoming first citizen. He wanted peace and prosperity, not power. Believe me, Mike, I intend to follow his example. I will save New Roman. When I do, I will remember my friends. Mike shifted his inconsiderable bulk. You sound certain. Has your gift of prophecy... Octavian held up his hand in warning. He glanced at Jacob the Eagle Bearer, who was still standing at attention behind him. Jacob, you're dismissed. Why don't you go polish the eagle or something? Jacob's shoulders slumped in relief. Yes, Augur. I mean Centurion. I mean Pontifex. I mean go. I'll go. Once Jacob had hobbled off, Octavian's face clouded. Mike, I told you not to speak of my, uh, problem. But to answer your question, no, there still seems to be some interference with Apollo's usual gift to me. He glanced resentfully at a pile of mutilated stuffed animals heaped in the corner of the porch. I can't see the future. Perhaps that false oracle at Camp Half-Blood is working some witchcraft. But as I've told you before, in strictest confidence, Apollo spoke to me clearly last year at Camp Jupiter. He personally blessed my endeavors. He promised I would be remembered as the savior of the Romans. Octavian spread his arms, revealing his harp tattoo, the symbol of his godly forefather. Seven slash marks indicated his years of service, more than any presiding officer, including Reyna. Never fear, Mike, we will crush the Greeks. We will stop Gaia and her minions. Then we will take that harpy, the Greeks that have been harboring, the one who memorized our Sibylline books, and will force her to give us the all knowledge of our ancestors. Once that happens, I'm sure Apollo will restore my gift of prophecy. Camp Jupiter will be more powerful than ever, and we will rule the future. 
Mike's scowl didn't lessen, but he raised his fist in salute. You're the boss. Yes, I am. Octavian pulled his dagger from the table. Now go check on those two dwarfs you captured. I want them properly terrified before I interrogate them again and dispatch them to Tartarus. The dream faded. Hey, wake up! Reyna's eyes fluttered open. Gleason Hedge was leaning over her, shaking her shoulder. We got trouble. His grave tone got her blood moving. What is it? She struggled to sit up. (laughs) Ghosts? Monsters? Hedge scowled. Worse. Tourists. And that's the end of chapter six. Well, I think that this was definitely a very interesting update to how Octavian has been handling the Roman camp. And to say the least, I must say, I still continue to show my dislike for Octavian. I just, I think that I can see his motivation behind why exactly he believes he should be the leader, especially that one key line that Octavian has been there at Camp Jupiter longer than any presiding officer, and that includes Reyna, who is the Praetor. I think that could get some, that definitely could get some envy going on within Octavian. And because of that, because of that line, we can see such importance that has formulated with Octavian and why he feels the way he does and why he was so bent on being the leader at Camp Camp Jupiter and planning to take Camp Half-Blood because he wanted to prove his worth and prove that all the years that he's been here, he knows the strategies to win a war. He knows the strategies to beat anything because he has been observant, observant of both the camp and the Praetors overall. It's a very, it was a very fascinating chapter, and I can't wait to read next week chapters on 7 and 8. But before we end this episode, I'm going to go into a quick Q&A session. I know some of you guys um, suggested that I do a Q&A session at the end of the month. However, I feel that um, it would be easier for me to do these Q&A sessions at the end of each episode because I wouldn't want to skip on too many questions if I wasn't able to remember them or if I wasn't able to, for some external reason, answer them. So I'm trying my best to answer as many as I can in each episode so that everybody feels included to the best of my ability. So before I go into shout outs uh, and questions, I just want to say one uh, uh, the quick disclaimers. Um, I will try my best to get everybody, but if I do not get your question or your shout out, please do let me know in the next episode and I will try to get you. However, when it comes to questions, if the questions that I deem are too personal, then I may not answer them. That doesn't mean that it's anything on the viewers, on you guys. I just at the moment feel a bit uncomfortable answering them and maybe hopefully in the future I will be answering them. But at the moment, you're fear of you. You are free to ask any questions that you have may have, and I just didn't want anybody feeling bad if I wasn't able to answer their question. So moving on to our shout out session, we have only one shout out today, and that is going to be Emmers. Thank you. And moving on to our questions. Number one, what is your favorite dessert? Um, I'd probably have to say either cinnamon rolls or potentially cake um when it comes to cake i think marble cake is is really nice uh next question is what's your favorite book i don't think i necessarily have a favorite book per se but um 
I do have a lot of favorite books that fall within the romantic comedies and the fantasies. I do find myself to be a fan of both of those. Uh, next question is, do you have any predictions on if Hazel and Frank or Jason and Piper will have a happy ending? I'm not sure on Hazel and Frank. I'm, I'm, I'm confident that, or I am semi-confident that they will potentially end up with having a very happy and very healthy relationship um, with that too. But when it, in, in terms of Jason and Piper, my one concern is when we looked at the prophecy, it was either going to be Leo or Jason. So with either of that, it's either going to be Calypso or Piper that's going to be end up hurting. And it's going to be very interesting to see how exactly this is going to turn out. But my my guess is that Hazel and Frank will most likely 85 to 90 percent more chance of being together and having a happy ending than compared to Jason and Piper because of unfortunately the Piper the prophecy doesn't wish to have a see that happy ending for the two of them but yes that is what my guesses are next question is have you read Lore Olympus uh I have not read that uh specific comic I do know that it's a comic I've heard that it's a comic a famous comic um I haven't read that uh but if maybe sometime in the future i'd love to read it and see how the plot goes and everything i do know it's greek mythology based so i would definitely love to read and just sit down and read for hours upon hours of that comic uh next question is a favorite uh person from any of the seven uh i probably have to say leo uh, just simply because of his comedic timing and who he is as a person, I think I can relate to him much more than compared to other people uh, in terms of his personality and how he likes to look at life. Next question is, have you heard of Skullduggery Pleasant by Derek Landry? I have not, but I'll be sure to check that out soon. Next question is, do you listen to Taylor Swift? I have found myself listening to some Taylor Swift songs, so yeah. Next question is, how do you think Annabeth and Percy have changed overall after coming back from Tartarus? I think I think there there is there's two ways that can be seen through this. It's one, they have a bigger appreciation over their lives. If they thought that being a demigod before was hard, going into Tartarus, I think, really threw that reality check on them that they didn't know they needed. And because of that, I think they value life much more than what they first experienced in Tartarus. Just simply because of all the torture they've gone through and all the experiences that they've gone through together, they have that motivation and they have the fact that they've bonded over such a life and death experience over a long period of time. That really builds relationships. So I think you have some cons associated with that, but you also have some pros associated with that as well. Next question is, what is your favorite dinosaur? I'd probably have to say the Spinosaurus. Um just because of its ability to both be both have i believe if i remember my research correctly spinosauruses are omnivores which means they eat both plants and animals at least when they were alive so i feel like that was very fascinating to me next question is have you read any indian mythology i have heard of indian mythology and i think that it's extremely fascinating um i'm not sure what i would recommend but i do know that it's extremely diverse and there's so many different stories in within indian mythology that just keep you entertained Uh, you could sit a whole day reading all these myths and 
you'd never become bored. So I think that it's 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 definitely, you know, it really shows the beauty of mythology and how different cultures around the world have different re- beliefs about their cultures and how that can be represented with mythology. So I think that that's very fascinating. But yes, I will be continuing to read as many myths as I can find because I really tru- truly love the idea of myths in general. Next question is, how many books have you read in in your entire life? I would probably say either around 20 to 30 if I wanted an estimate. But yeah. Did you start a second series with Harry Potter? No, I have not at the moment. But in the future, I may be considering to start another podcast that does center around Harry Potter. So stay tuned for that, maybe. Next question is, who would win in a fight? Percy, Annabeth, Jason, or Luke? Oh, wow. That is a very hard one. Um, I'd probably have to say... It'd be very hard because Percy and Jason are obviously much alike. So, potentially, they're both at a disadvantage when it comes to Annabeth and Luke. Because Percy and Jason have similar combat styles, if I remember correctly. And because of that, it'll be easier to predict defeating both of them because they're so similar than compared to beating someone like Annabeth and Luke, who both have different, unique fighting styles. So it'd be definitely interesting to watch that if that ever went down. However, I don't wish that for, for that to ever happen. So, yeah. And that concludes our Q&A session. I hope you guys enjoyed that just as much as I did. Next week, we will continue by reading chapters 7 through 8. And we will continue to see how exactly this journey goes with Reyna and the rest of the others. So until next week, stay safe and stay out of boredom.